Ah, financial independence. We all want it, to be free from the rat race and in control of our own destiny, rather than at the mercy of our purse strings. I mean, imagine being able to wake up and not have to worry about your bottom line. But how can we actually make it happen? Today's episode, Financial Independence. Hello everyone, I'm Kelly Sutton. Welcome back to The Save Space. Everyone has their own definition of financial independence. I'm sure some of you out there have aspirations to be your own boss, or maybe you just want to have a solid retirement plan in place. Well, today, we're going to learn how to create strategies for financial freedom. Thankfully, we have a well-rounded show of entrepreneurs and experts who have achieved just that, and they're here today to share some tricks of the trade. Nick Loper from Side Hustle Nation returns to the pod. You may remember him from episode two. He'll be sharing more tips on how you can be your own boss. Then Cheddar News anchor Hope King will sit down with financial expert and author Stephanie O'Connell. Next, our friend Josh Modell from TalkHouse returns with musician Katie Harkin to discuss the unpredictability of the industry and how she rolls with that. And lastly, money girl Laura Adams is back with a few tips just for you. Okay, let's drop into the safe space. I'm so excited to sit down again with Nick Loper, chief side hustler at Side Hustle Nation. And he hosts the podcast, The Side Hustle Show, giving folks tips and inspiration to start their own ventures. Nick, welcome back to The Safe Space. Now, last time we focused on starting a business, this time we're talking about financial independence. That's a big jump. So how would you define financial independence? Yeah, that is a big jump, and this would probably be a life goal for everybody. So simply put, financial independence is the point at which work becomes optional. Not necessarily saying you have to stop working, but you've made it optional, and it's a really powerful uh, financial position to be in. In technical terms, uh, what that looks like is when income from assets you control exceeds your monthly expenses. This was an idea first introduced to me in uh, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, which mm-hmm. my roommate gave me back in college. And that usually happens in one of three ways. The Rich Dad book talks about rental real estate, so that's one option. The other option that's very popular in the uh, FIRE community right now is building an investment nest egg or portfolio that amounts to 25 times your annual expenses. And then option three is what we talked about last time, like building uh, or buying, which is an option two, a cash-flowing business. Okay, so we've got three different steps already set out in front of us. Gearing yourself up to be financially independent, it seems daunting. I mean, when you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, everybody wants that. But what are some of the things that people need to do to get to those three levels? What's the first step? So step one, get rid of your debt. Like, Think about your net worth, um, which is a fancy way of saying like what you own minus what you owe. Like that's, that's a rough way to calculate your net worth. Like getting back to zero, getting back to broke is a really important step. Like if you owe money, like a newborn baby, like may have a higher net worth than you. Like that's just kind of a scary place to be in. Like, <laughs> so get back to zero. Step one, start to think of your household as a business. We talked about kind of this entrepreneurial mindset, recognizing you're already the CEO of your own life. And this is a pretty quick exercise, but just do a quick check on your own personal profitability. 
like from your paycheck and any other income that you have coming in, what's left over at the end of the month after paying for your rent, your mortgage, your car insurance, you know, your daycare expenses, uh, your student debt payment, like all of that stuff, like what's left over? And the nationwide savings rate is abysmal, something like 4%, right? I don't know the latest data. Mm. Like, so if you're four percent profitable you know it's running pretty lean but at least you're you're in the black right and if you could get that up to 10 percent, 20 percent, 50 percent like think of that doing that exercise will force you to look at your expenses say like oh holy crap where could i cut but also okay what could i do to increase the revenue side because out of every dollar that i earn like hey as long as my as long as i don't do the lifestyle creep thing every dollar that i earn goes straight to the bottom line so that'd be step two and then step three just easy easy money right out of the gate is make sure you're taking full advantage of your company's 401k match just i see people who are like oh, i just i never set that up and it's like your company is offering like six percent you know company match like that's free mm-hmm. money you're never going to get a, find a, a better deal you know, your journey to be your own boss didn't happen overnight. So what's one thing that you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself when you first decided to fully commit being your own boss? This was such a scary leap. And I actually still remember I was out to dinner with my boss and it took, I was on my second beer before I got up the nerve to finally tell him like, look, I'm out of here. And it's because it's this, this question of like, well, this is what I went to school for. Like, this is you know, c- mm. can I cut my own paycheck in the real world? And yeah, I had a, a track record of, of revenue history prior to that, which which gave me the confidence to do it. But it's still kind of this scary leap to make. So if I could tell myself one bit of advice, it would be, you'll figure it out. And this is something that my wife has echoed to me during during some some trying times. Like, don't worry, you'll figure it out. The entrepreneurial road is filled with with bumps and twists and turns, but that's your job as the business owner is to figure out how to get past that. You'll figure it out. I love that. Okay, biggest mistakes that you see people make. They decided to get their lives financially under control. Maybe they've got a side hustle. Maybe they don't. What are some of the things they really need to be focusing on, you know, just baby steps out of the gate? So we talked about finding your your why, like kind of this driving force behind your decisions. Maybe that's, hey, I want to retire early. Hey, I want to spend more time with my kids. Hey, I've always wanted to travel to Italy. Like, what's the what's the why behind it? But one of the biggest mistakes that people make, and I've been guilty of this myself too, is just like getting caught up in the inertia of day-to-day life. You know, we've got all these existing commitments and responsibilities, so we don't take time, because these are like hard conversations sometimes to have with your spouse or partner, to take charge, to take an honest look at where we're going. Are the actions we're taking today going to get us there? Uh, A recent guest on the Side Hustle Show, he he told me about placing this $3,000 order for inventory for like this physical product business that he was starting. And I asked him like, man, 3000 bucks. Were you nervous about that? And he was like, of course I was. But at a certain point, you got to do something or tomorrow is going to look like today. And I thought that was a really powerful message. Like, you, you know, the definition of insanity is like doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. At mm. some point, you got to do something or tomorrow is going to look like today. So about a generation ago, everybody thought the full-time gig is what you wanted. You went to college, you got your degrees, and you got the full-time job, and it was going to be job security. That's not the case anymore. Why do you think everything has changed? Oh, this is a probably a deeply philosophical macroeconomic question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's changed for a couple reasons. Number one is employees are 
are satisfied with some more flexible work arrangements. They seem happier to piece together an income from several different sources. And on the flip side, employers are partially driving that change by saying, hey, we can hire contractors instead of employees. Look how much money it saves us. And on top of that, hey, they can work from home. It's flexible. So it's being driven really by both sides. But the the pragmatic approach to it as the employee or as the worker is to say, okay, now I need to be responsible for piecing together this income, whether that comes from you know one client, one employer, one nine to five job, or whether that comes from 10 different clients. I could spread out my risk a little bit. Actually, funny story, like a uh, another guest of the podcast was a photojournalist and he won like best international sports photographer of the year, so like the highest prize that he could win in his industry, goes in to talk to his boss, um, and he's got a baby on the way, and is he's like trying to get this ten percent raise, um, and he's making like thirty grand a year. So he's like, I'm looking for like a three thousand dollar raise, and the boss is like, Vincent, I'm sorry, man, I tried to fight for you, I can get you four percent, and he's like. You know, for, the difference between four and ten percent, like, was not even going to be meaningful. But it's just, you know, he had no control over mm-hmm. that aspect of his life, and it was so, like, you know, he just felt crushed by that. Mm-hmm. And so, what he ended up doing, actually, you know, heart to heart with his his dad and some other people, it's like, look, you have this skill set. You're obviously good at what you do. You're just not using it in the right way. Like, why don't you shoot weddings? Why don't you shoot corporate events? And he's like, I'm a journalist. Like, journalists don't do that stuff. But, you know, he swallowed his pride in doing that, ended up working like crazy to make this happen. But within four years, he'd quit his job, paid off the house, like, you know, just shifting that skill set to a slightly different client base had, you know, completely changed his life around. So I thought that was really, really funny. And one of his coworkers at the newspaper was like, man, what if, uh, you know, what if you lose a client? And he's like, I got 30 weddings lined up. If I lose a yeah. client, it's not that big of a deal. If you lose your client, you know, you're out of a job and it's really stressful. So that's, that's a story that definitely has stuck with me. Oh, you know what? That one hits very close to home and I'm so glad that you told it. Okay, we're going to leave you right now, but we want one last piece of advice. How does one obtain financial independence in today's world? What do you think is your best scenario? Well, I think your fastest path is the entrepreneurship path. So the three we talked about, right, is building business, you know, acquiring enough rental real estate. So the cash flow from rental income covers your expenses or, you know, accumulating this sizable nest egg um, through investment, you know, stocks and bonds, portfolio stuff that can take years, that can take decades, you know, depending on your savings rate. Same thing with real estate. Like I've been burned in in the real estate world. So I'm like, "Ah, I don't know if I want to, you know, have this neighborhood full of houses uh, all around. But building a business is likely the fastest path to get there because you can start incredibly low overhead. You can build it up part-time, spare time. And as long as you keep your expenses low, you have so much more control over where that goes. And again, financial independence is when work becomes optional. You don't necessarily need to quit. You could keep building that income as well and and build the nest egg even faster that way. We've seen examples from all three strategies, but by far and away, the fastest path to get there is people who've kind of created their own luck, created their own business. Thank you so much, Nick Loper. We appreciate it. Thank you. Congratulations on all your success, and thanks for coming by to inspire all of us and give us an education on the steps we can take to becoming financially independent. And when in doubt, we'll remember your advice. You'll figure it out. 
Moving on to our next guest, we go to our partner, Hope King at Cheddar News. Today, she's talking to financial expert and author, Stephanie O'Connell. Stephanie consults with young professionals to help them get more from their money so they can go after what they want. With that said, take it away, Hope. Hey, Kelly. Great to be back with TuneIn and U.S. Bank for the final episode of the Save Space podcast. This week, I want to rewind the clock a little. We're going back to the good old college days to give students and recent grads the financial IQ boost I wish I had. Joining me now to make sure we help our young people get off on the right foot is financial expert and author Stephanie O'Connell. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. Such a cool age to be, of course, when you're in college. If you think about your finances, though, what age do you think you should start in order to build your credit? So when it comes to credit and building it, you can't get your own credit card until you're 18. That said, you can be added as an authorized user on someone like your parents' card way before that. So if your parents trust you and you're practicing some good habits, like if you get an allowance and maybe you save some of it, maybe they'll trust you to be added to their credit card as an authorized user. And that'll allow you to start building credit from even before you're 18. Now, if you don't have a credit card or if you haven't been added as an authorized user and you want to start building credit on your own and you're in college, that's actually a really good time to apply for maybe a student credit card. Those cards are specifically built with college students in mind. So you want to be looking for something that's going to allow you to start building that credit history and the credit habits that are going to sustain you the rest of your life. Speaking of habits, any budgeting tips that you would give to the college students out there? Now, I know college is a hard time because you probably don't don't have a huge, if any, income, and you probably have a ton of expenses, not to mention the student loans that are breathing down your neck or that you're like kind of stashing away in the back of your brain, like, I'll deal with this in four years. But it's still a good habit to be tracking your money. Even if you're not paying the loans right now, even if you're not earning the income right now, or even if you're earning just a little income right now, keeping track of everything that does come in and everything that does go out is going to make you a lot more mindful of your money and conscious of your spending habits. And that seems like a good way to build habits for the rest of your life. Exactly. You know, we we talk about college as like building the knowledge foundation for the rest of our lives, but it's also building the life skills foundation. And money touches every aspect of your life, so there's really no better time to build those habits. Really well said. Now, let's talk about salary negotiation when you are getting out of college. Negotiating a higher salary is often the fastest way to make more money, but let's start our listeners off on the right foot. What tips do you have for young people when having that salary talk with a potential future employer? So the biggest mistake I see people make when it comes to salary negotiations is talking about why they want to earn more money in the context of their own lives. Like, I want to buy a house or I want to move out on my own, so I need to earn more money. Except when you're talking to your employer, like, what's going on in your personal life really has no bearing on how much you should be compensated from their perspective. So I always say frame the salary negotiation around what value you are adding to your employer that extends above and beyond your current compensation. Now, if you work in a sales job, for example, it's really easy to do this because there's probably a baseline
baseline metric by which your performance is measured. You must make X sales per month or you must reach X in revenue. And if you exceed that, well, then you have a case to make with clear, concrete numbers. Now, if you work in a department like HR, you have to figure out what the metrics of success are in that role. So maybe it's employee satisfaction. Maybe it's the way you're reviewed. Maybe it's retention. So whatever position you're in, figure out what success looks like to your employer. And then keep track of how you are performing against those benchmarks and how you're going above and beyond. And then when it comes time to negotiate your salary, you have a case to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about those who might feel like benefits are more important? What other things can you ask for? It's a great point. It's not just about the money. The money's really important. Let's not pretend otherwise. But that's just a piece of the puzzle, especially now we're talking about uh, flexible work hours. Can I work from home? Can I get extra vacation days? Uh, What are some perks I could get? Could I get uh, continuing education classes paid for, a master's degree paid for? I mean, those are highly valuable things that that even if your employer says, you know, maybe I can't give you a financial raise right now. Maybe there is something, one, we can either introduce in the next few months or I can give you an extra week of vacation. And it's all fair game. You shouldn't feel scared to ask for these things. Absolutely not. Oh, the big benefit now is the student loan repayments by your employer. That's a big benefit to ask for. Okay, so you can talk about all these things as you're negotiating for that first job. Yeah, ask for it. Otherwise, you know, you're just waiting on someone to give it to you. And chances are, if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. And let's just go back to this first point of asking for that higher salary off the bat. Why is that so important? So your first salary is the anchor from which you negotiate future raises. So let's say you're getting a 10% increase. If you didn't negotiate that first salary offer, then you're anchored down that original 10% increase from that original number. Whereas if you had already negotiated 10% when you initially got the job offer, then your next 10% increase is a significantly higher increase. And that compounds over the course of your career. That's right. And people, I think, don't often realize that. And they think that if they get a raise later, that that's still just as good. But if you're starting out at, let's just say, 50000 when you could have been starting at 60000 that's a $1,000 raise difference down the line. Exactly. And what about the differences in maybe if you are a woman, if you are a minority? Yes. How do you ensure that you're getting paid the same amount as everybody else? Yeah, so this is really tricky because I'm a big advocate for negotiation, especially for women and minorities. But there's also a lot of backlash when these marginalized groups stand up for themselves. Women are perceived and minorities are perceived as, you know, being bossy or, you know, being ambitious in a bad way, often by their employers when they stand up for themselves and when they try to negotiate. And that's why this idea of coming back to always the metrics of success and grounding your negotiation in data is so important because you can't argue with the data. Now, in terms of figuring out how much you should be asking for, I think it's really important to have a dialogue with peers and also to use resources like online. They have sites like Glassdoor. And, and pay scale and like salary.com, I believe. And so you can look up your position, the salary range based on your location, based on your experience. But that's just a piece of the puzzle. It's also really important to have a dialogue and a community that you can have these conversations with openly. Great. Now you've got this money, you're making a salary, investing it wisely. Retirement is something that everybody should think about earlier on. Can you start contributing to both a Roth and a 401k, and, and when can you start doing that? Yeah, so uh, a Roth you can start contributing to. You do need some earned income, 
So even if you're a, a child, your parent could open a custodial account for you. And if you're, let's say, a child star, like doing commercials or something, or even if you're like dog walking or something like that or babysitting, if you have some form of earned income, that money can be invested in a Roth IRA, for example. A 401k is something that you get access to through an employer. So, you know, a lot of young people now are doing contract-based work, and they often do not have access to an employer 401k plan or any kind of employer-sponsored retirement plan. So in that case, it's really important for those individuals to be really self-directed and look at options like a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA or a SEP IRA. Now, if you do have a 401k, that's awesome. Like, please take advantage of it. Talk to your HR department. Get to know the ins and outs. Is there an employer match? Can you max that out? If there are good funds in there that don't have high expenses, maybe you max out your 401k contributions and you do have money left over that you can invest in a Roth on your own. So yes, go for it. If you can max it out, go for it. And it's free money, everybody out there. Right. So with the 401k, what the employer match is the free money piece of it. So that's the thing you really want to find out. It's like, how much do I need to contribute to maximize my employer match? And I know like free money... It just sounds like such too good to be true, but it's not. It's one of those things that's totally legit. So if you have access to it, please take advantage of it. Right. <laughs> Essentially, if you put in a dollar, a lot of companies will give you a dollar mm-hmm. up to a certain amount of money. Correct. And that's what you have to kind of ask your HR department for. All right. Good stuff. And you touched on this a little bit. Stretching that paycheck mm-hmm. and student debt is a problem that many and if not all Americans have even a little bit of. Generally speaking, how much should you be paying off your student debt with that paycheck? How much should you be saving? So you want to be keeping up with at least the minimum payments on your student loans. Now, if your student loan is taking up let's say 30% or even 50% of your paycheck, that's going to be really unsustainable for you. In which case, you want to get on the phone with your lenders. You want to get on the government website and look at what other loan repayment options are available to you. You can look at extended repayment plans. You could look at income-based repayment plans. You have to, again, consider what the payments are in context of your personal salary. And if you're looking at something that's taking up so much of your paycheck that you can't meet your other monthly expenses and it's driving you into credit card debt, that interest rate on that debt is going to be a lot more than your student loans. So get on the phone with the lenders, talk to them about what your options are so you can reduce that monthly payment if you need to. That's really, really important and really key. Such a pleasure to have you on. Stephanie O'Connell is a financial expert and author. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Wow, I had no idea that you could actually ask your employer to help pay off your student loans. It's brilliant. And it's so true. When it comes to finances and really almost anything in life, if you don't ask, you won't get it. Thanks so much, Stephanie, and hope. After the break, we'll reconnect with our friends at TalkHouse, who will bring in a super cool musician from across the pond. She sang on Saturday Night Live with Dua Lipa, and she's hip to helping other artists keep their money in their pocket. I dig that. And we'll bring back our friend and guru, money girl, Laura Adams, with some hot takes on financial independence. So stick around. This episode of the Save Space podcast is brought to you by U.S. Bank. For everyone working toward their goal, U.S. Bank is there to help. Whether you're starting a business or dealing with unexpected expenses, U.S. Bank wants to help you grow your financial IQ so you can handle whatever life throws at you. From personal finance to business strategies, access free resources that will help you improve your financial literacy. 
There's something for everyone. Visit usbank.com slash financial IQ or just tell your smart speaker, enable grow your financial IQ. Okay, let's get back to the safe space. Welcome back, safe spacers. Let's check in with Josh Modell at TalkHouse as he chats with Katie Harkin, founding member and front person of UK indie band Skylarkin. Katie has toured with artists like Sleater Kinney and Courtney Barnett and is well-loved by the music community. So personally, I can't wait to hear about how she's managed her financial independence alongside her artist journey. Shall we get to it, Josh? So I wanted to start by saying or kind of asking, you've been a musician for a long time. At what point did you consider it your profession? Well, I've been a musician. I mean, I've played guitar since I was about 15, Mm -hmm. uh, but I've been self-employed since my early 20s. I think I was 21 or 22. And that's the thing that I'm really the proudest of when people ask me about my career as a musician. I think it's kind of easy to fall into a trap of like thinking of myself in a series of albums. But realistically, I'm just really proud that I've been self-employed that long. And yes, I've had other forms of employment in between. But the fact that I've been able to sustain that for this point over a decade is a point of pride. Do you have a memory of sort of when that happened and and what you were feeling at that point? Like, was it just a matter of like, oh, I've sold enough records, I'm playing gigs regularly enough? I mean, my memory of it is truly going to the accountant and filling out Mm -hmm. the paperwork because... As a musician, it isn't quite so cut and dry. It's a feast or famine kind of job. It's not like you're getting a regular paycheck regardless. Maybe unless you're a unionized orchestral musician, I I really don't know. So for me, just going through those steps of being empowered to know that I was self-employed and to kind of feed off the fear that that generates, but also the pride of being able to stand by my work and say, yeah, this is what I do. That's awesome. So you mentioned feast or famine. So is it sort of a fairly inconsistent thing? Do you have years where you're just like, oh man, that was amazing. And other years where you're feeling like it's cutting it close? Absolutely. It's definitely a a feast or famine situation as a musician and and the years can be wildly different, but it's also just reflects the life cycle of an album. There needs to be a time of introspection and being an introvert to allow you to go and be an extrovert and be rewarded in the ways that our society rewards extroverts. Yeah, it's part of the natural life cycle. It's, It's built in. So having any kind of financial stability is obviously incredibly empowering for musicians. Are you good at the financial stuff or is it tough for you? Are you are you sort of naturally numbers headed? I think like m- maybe most musicians are not. I wouldn't say I was a numbers headed person. I did pretty well at school and I got good grades apart from maths or math as you call it here. <laughs> My parents are both medics and very mathematically minded and scientifically minded. So in terms of my family, I've been the artistic leaning one. So no, I'm not playing the markets. When it comes to your sort of financial stuff, then do you just sort of have a person that you trust to, you know, kind of help you run your business, the business of being Katie Harkin? Or do you kind of do that on your own? I'm not in the position yet of having a dedicated business manager, which is something that musicians end up having Mm. but equally it's all based on scale and 
when you scale up, your expenses go up. So yes, if you are doing well enough to get your own business manager, you also have to pay them and you have to pay them sometimes, you know, in perpetuity. So it's the sort of balancing act to work out how much of our autonomy we want to surrender Mm. due to financial circumstances and how much being smart about our finances, our autonomy can be bolstered by that. Are you a planner? Do you think about your financial future? I would say I'm a planner in that I'm always, you know, trying to come up with a creative scheme of some kind. But because of the nature of the business and the industry that I'm in, it can't really be predicted because inspiration can't be easily predicted. And at the point of delivery, because you never know how people are going to react to a song or what song is going to get picked up by some commercial in some other country or something that's impossible to predict. So there's a certain amount of of surrendering to the chaos of it all (laughs) that is necessary. Without necessarily going into the actual numbers, have you ever had a sort of a windfall moment like that where you're like, oh, somebody wants a commercial or, you know, all of a sudden this single is doing well? There's been nothing that's like, cool, I'm buying a car, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the huge windfall moments that, yes, you do hear about. And it's something that filters through, you know, you hear about a friend got a song on so-and-so and and it's always like, yes, like it's kind of like hearing somebody's won the lottery because it, it is so impossible to predict as somebody who's operating outside of the major label system. You know, there's certain tracks that are inbuilt within that that, you know, make most sense. But for an independent musician, those things are always going to be unpredictable. Yeah. So then, if you don't mind me asking this, where does the kind of lion's share of your income come from then? Is it from touring? I assume it's not from streaming because that seems to be kind of a dead end, right? The lion's share of my income is absolutely from touring and being invited to tour with other musicians has enabled me to fund my own recordings, for example. Mm. And I, I think that's part of what is special about music in that it is really a community that supports each other and that by other musicians putting their faith in me to play their music and giving me the opportunity, I really feel like it's my responsibility to invest at least some of that back into continuing that process and, you know, meaning that I had, for example, Air Miles to go and take my solo band to South by Southwest this year. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that has monetary value that isn't a form of being directly paid. So these things, they all add up and, you know, being frugal about my air miles is is just as important as my bank account. Are there any other challenges, like financial challenges, unique to your situation, do you think? Like I'm wondering if if it's tough to get an apartment or things like that. I, I mean, I grew up in Leeds in Yorkshire in the north of England mm. and there was, you know, a time when a certain kind of laddie in indie music became very popular. So A&R's came up from London sort of for the first time to come and listen to Leeds bands to try and find another one of those for a, you know, a quick check. But otherwise, it's been a city that's always thrived independently. And I think growing up there really taught me, you know, if you want it to happen, you have to make it happen. Mm. And I think that that's given me the tools going forward to have that kind of inner drive and nerve to be able to move my life to places and in ways that avoid 
as best I can, creative compromise. Mm. So I have lived in big cities. I went to college in London and lived there briefly afterwards, but I just felt like I was becoming more of a creative consumer than a creative instigator. And I think there's definite, you know, financial restrictions about living in a big city that would take away the things that I need to do what I do, which is a certain amount of space. I have a certain amount of stuff that I need to put between my brain and an audience Mm. to entertain them. I need to have a certain amount of quiet in order to make things. And I also need a certain amount of time to do that. So at the moment, I'm not in the wage bracket that I could live in a big city and be able to create those scenarios for myself. It is possible, but it's expensive. Mm. So at the moment, that's an equation that currently doesn't add up for me. But it's not something that young people are necessarily encouraged or empowered to do. You kind of answered it there, but I'm, I'm wondering if more specifically, like as someone whose income is maybe inconsistent over time, like we were talking about, is it tougher to then get a loan if you want one or, or you know, things like that? I'm just wondering if people look askance, like in the financial world, that, oh, you're a musician, therefore you're not necessarily reliable. Yeah, people definitely require you to keep a lot of receipts <laughs> and to keep a lot of records, which is frustrating, but also probably best in the long run. One of the things that I have begun to do to retain some level of creative autonomy is that I've collectivized creatively with my partner. We will be releasing music of mine through Hand Mirror, which is a the name of it and she will be releasing writing through that too and part of founding that is to invest in our community you know I've been put in situations where I've had to fight to retain my rightful intellectual property because of the ways that the music industry operates and you know in terms of saving for the future retaining rights and things like that are are just as important as putting money in the bank So anything I can do to help amplify the voices of others, particularly queer, marginalized voices in an environment that's artistically friendly and that tries to defeat any element of uh, entitlement that other institutions might have over uh, creative freedom is is what I want to do. That's awesome. Okay, and buy a van. Buy (laughs) Buy a van is the other thing I'd say. If you've got any means to, yeah, anything that gives you your... uh, means of production, your creative freedom to to go and take the shows. Because as I say, community is such a big part of it. Community is where the opportunities come from. It's where all of my opportunities have come from. So yeah, just being able to physically move myself to different cities has uh, changed my life. Oh, that's awesome. So how many, how many vans have you had over the years? I had two. My first van I got when I was 21. He was called Horse the Van after the <laughs> hardcore band Horse the Band. <laughs> right. And then he uh, sadly passed away and then we got Horse 2, who is still uh, in Leeds. He's been touring. I think the band that owns him now supported Big Thief recently, so I think he went to the Roundhouse in London, which is very exciting. But I I stalk him through Instagram, so I'm still connected. (laughs) But yeah, buy a van if you can. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Katie. I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. All right. Horse the van. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yeah, you know, a van seems like a necessity for any musician coming up in the industry. It definitely feels like a solid investment. Thank you so much, Katie, for taking us through the ebbs and flows. It certainly is an unpredictable business. 
The more up-and-coming artists can learn from your experience, the better off they'll be in the long run. One of the things I love so much about this podcast are the fun facts that I take away from all of our guest contributors. I really feel like I'm getting an education, but in the most easy to understand way possible. And yet, there's always more to learn. That's why we have author, speaker, and host of the award-winning podcast, The Money Girl, Laura Adams, back with us today. Always a pleasure to pick your brain. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Okay, financial independence. This is kind of one of those terms I think everybody has their own definition. What's your definition of financial independence? To me, it means being prepared to handle the unexpected. It's really that simple. So if you are, uh, you know, you have everything in place to deal with whatever may come around the corner that you can't see right now, that means you are independent. So, you know, as you said, this is going to be a little different for everybody. But I think especially as young people begin to think about their lives being prepared for the unexpected. I mean, that is what it is. It separates them from their parents and allows them to just get on the right path. Okay, let's talk about credit card debt, because I feel like that's the first roadblock in this road to financial independence for a lot of people. How do you start to tackle that? Yeah, it is an issue because it's so easy to get. And, you know, it's so easy to rack up lots of debt. And, you know, I think the key to remember here is that This is something that costs you more the longer that you let it sit. So as that interest accrues, that whatever you bought, the shoes, the clothes, could end up costing you three or four times the original purchase price if it takes you a few years to pay that card off. So, you know, would you have paid four times the amount that you paid for those shoes or whatever it is? Probably not, hopefully not. But that's what you end up paying when you allow that debt to accrue, that interest to accrue over time. So my tip here is to look at all of your balances in order of highest interest rate to lowest interest rate. Okay. Literally make a list, list it out, you know, the card that you owe, uh, the balance, the interest rate, and start tackling that highest interest rate debt first if you've got multiple loans. Why? Well, because higher interest rates are costing you the most on a percentage basis. So, you know, of course, if you've got debt that you can't pay off in full, the tip is stop making new charges, right, you Mm -hmm. know, until you can get it paid off. Use raises, bonuses, windfalls, tax refunds, gifts, anything that you've got to help you pay that down. And, you know, just shift your focus from paying the minimum each month to let's get it all paid off each month. Or how can we make payments that are much more than the minimum, maybe gradually more than the minimum as time goes on? Get that chunk paid down. I've heard of something called credit card surfing. So if you've got one that's got like an 18 or 21% interest rate, that you should go and try to find another card that has a lower interest rate and then transfer everything over to that. Do you recommend that or is that like a Band-Aid fix? It depends. If you have a plan to pay that card off before that promotion expires, it can be a great way to save money. Okay. But if you transfer, and it's called a balance transfer credit card, if you get that balance transferred and you don't pay it off, you let it sit there, what happens is the interest rate reverts back or even is higher in some cases than what you were paying before. So be sure that you understand what is the rate going to be when this promotion expires. And if it, let's say it's a 12-month period, if you can just pay one twelfth every month until you've got it done and completely paid off at the end of that period, that will save you a lot of money. Absolutely. So should you still be putting aside some money even if you've got credit card debt? 
I believe you should because okay. if you don't, you are losing valuable time. You are just burning time mm-hmm. where that money could be growing and, and working for you. So, you know, I would say it's going to depend. If you've got loads and loads of debt, well, maybe you want to put the the saving on hold temporarily and really focus. But for most people, we're able to do both goals at the same time, and that's ideal. Oh, I like that. Okay, we've talked about this a number of times, but we really need to hit home how important it is to start saving when you're young. What is the biggest misconception? I mean, is it just people think they have an unlimited amount of time and they can start saving when they're 30, 40? Yeah, I do. And, you know, honestly, I don't know anybody who truly feels like, yeah, I can afford to save and it just feels great. You know, nobody feels like that. So young people have to realize that they've just got to put aside all of the excuses. And actually, when you're young, you don't have kids probably and you don't have a lot of responsibilities that older people have. So it is really a good time. Even if you feel like it's a squeeze, get started. Even if it's 10 bucks a week, you've just got to jump in and do it. So that's the main advice. You know, there's always an excuse. And again, start small. And if your employer's matching, get that free money. I like it. Paying for education is more expensive than it's ever been. So what are some of the things that we need to think about if we're having conversations with people about to enter college or or getting very close to that age, taking out those loans for school? Well, first, I would say there are lots of options. Don't think you have to take out a loan. There are scholarships out there. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to get a scholarship. You don't have to be an athletic, you know, whiz to to get a scholarship. There are lots of of opportunities. If you look at them, you look for them, you apply early. So that's something that I would recommend kids do. There's, There's a lot more out there than you might realize. And when it comes to having a plan, talk it over. You know, if parents can't pay for college, let your kids know and let them you know, make some decisions based on that. If you can pay for a portion, a great thing to do might be save up for a third of of their cost, let them work for a third while they're in college, and then let them get loans for a third of it. So you can kind of have a a, a multi-pronged approach there. But yes, it's expensive. And again, you don't want to put all of your money into your kid's college education because you might end up having them need to take care of you in retirement. (laughs) And so this is something that, you know, you do want to be realistic about. Don't overpromise it. Kids have lots of options. So here's another tip. Think about that first year salary out of school. If you think that you're going to make about $50,000 first year out of school, that is the number that I would recommend borrowing as a maximum. So try to equal no more than that first year potential salary out of school. That is a good rule of thumb and something to definitely keep in mind. We've been talking a lot about trying to make ends meet and save for your future. I think a lot of people can get discouraged, especially when they're looking at it on paper, when it becomes black and white and it's staring at them. It might be a reality they weren't prepared for. So how do you keep people positive, even if they really aren't making the ground that they were hoping for, they aren't covering and getting closer to that retirement goal that they were hoping to hit. Maybe that number has been adjusted. How do you keep them positive and keep them on track? 
Yeah, I mean, I do think there are lots of ways that we can try to catch up. One is that you can contribute more to retirement accounts as you get older. So if you're over 50 and you're kind of looking at retirement, you know, down the road, there are opportunities to save more. That's one option. You can definitely do things like downsize your housing, you know, maybe downsize your vehicles to free up more money in order to put more away as you get closer and closer. Uh, A lot of people are retiring overseas even. I mean, it's not something that's for everybody, but if you're adventurous, there are ways to retire on less if you get there and realize that you just haven't done as good a job as you would have liked. So there are a lot of options, um, but as we've talked about, the sooner you can start, the better. Here's something to think about. If you save just $500 a month for 40 years, you can have $1.5 million in retirement. But if you start late, you do the same thing, 500 a month for 20 years, you'll have less than 300,000. That's the power of time and compounding. So again, it all comes back to start as early as you can, even if you feel like you can't afford it, you really can. Okay, everybody, go today and start saving. Open that account. Put as little or as much as you possibly can in it. It will make a big difference. Laura, we thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, what a final episode of The Save Space. I feel financially enlightened. As you can tell, there's definitely a combined approach to achieving financial independence. I hope these conversations have helped raise your financial IQ and gotten you a bit closer to reaching that dream of financial freedom. My wish, with the wisdom of The Save Space under our belts, is that hopefully one day soon, we can all be masters of our own destiny when it comes to those dollar dollar bills, y'all. I want to thank all of our incredible guests and contributors for taking the time to sit down with us today and offer their insight and expertise. Big thanks to Nick Loper from Side Hustle Nation. You can get more advice from Nick at SideHustleNation.com and make sure that you check out his podcast, The Side Hustle Show. That's available on TuneIn or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Stephanie O'Connell and Cheddar News anchor Hope King. We appreciate you, Katie Harkin and TalkHouse host Josh Modell. And finally, bringing us home with actionable tips, I want to thank our guest and my new friend, Laura Adams. Be sure that you check out the Money Girl podcast for even more insightful commentary on financial literacy across a myriad of topics. Don't worry if you don't have a pin. You can check out the description of this episode for links to learn more about all of our guests, as well as financial literacy resources. And of course, we want to thank U.S. Bank for making all of this possible. Remember, you can always head to usbank.com slash financial IQ for any existing money management questions that you may have. No matter how big or small your concerns, their rich resource of education materials can help you make sense of even the most complex issues. The Safe Space is hosted by me, Kelly Sutton, produced at TuneIn Studios by Charles Raggio and Jenner Pasqua, sound engineered and edited by Kevin Corrigian with additional support from Joyce Reiser, Stratton Easter, Aaron Fredman, and Andrew Broadhead. If you've enjoyed this episode, please check out all the others in the Save Space series. And please make sure to like, comment, and share with your friends and family. I know it seems like a small thing, but your feedback makes a big difference, and it helps us improve the Save Space podcast. So don't be shy. Thanks again for joining us on the Save Space. We've learned so much, and I hope you have too. Until next time.